Hello, loyal listeners, and welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends, episode 86. I am Anthony, your host. About 10 years ago, when I discovered the medium of podcasts and began to listen to many, for a while I used to listen to a wonderful podcast called 99% Invisible, which was about how things are designed. It was very professionally produced, and the host had the improbably wonderful name of Roman Mars. Anyway, anything could have a design, anything that we make and that we intend for people to use, right? Like from an appliance to a flag to urban infrastructure, you name it. So the show could cover just about anything. And I strongly recommend it. It's still going strong. Now, good design is something that works well and has its intended effect. Even if you don't know how it's working, what work went into the background, how it was designed to have that effect on you. Though knowing about how it was designed doesn't diminish the utility or the aesthetics of the design itself. In fact, in some cases, it enhances it. it you appreciate it all the more. Now, I love this podcast in part because I have no design talent. In a sense, it allowed me a glimpse into the wonderful ways that people think about how to shape things. The the only thing that I think I ever designed are books and courses, maybe podcast episodes about books. (laughs) I have a very limited repertoire here, uh, but the topic fascinates me. And in our field, the one area of design doesn't get really talked about that much, at least not in uh, professional analysis and scholarship, unless you look into some very specialized literature, which I haven't ever done, is museum exhibitions. Right now, I'm a child of the 80s, and you know, I grew up in Greece, where the idea of a museum was basically a box room with relatively good sunlight, where you put some marble stuff on a pedestal, Maybe there's a little tag that gives you some very, very basic information, and go. You know, people just walk through. Obviously, a lot has changed in the thinking that goes into uh, exhibition design, but I really wanted to get someone to talk to us about this because it's kind of opaque to me, at least. Uh, I definitely fit the model of a bookish kind of scholar. Like, I, whatever I do and design, I do it sitting surrounded by a pile of books on my own, and I interact with other people to request books and sources from them, and that's that's it. But a number of my colleagues, and many, many of those books that I need, are the product of a much more complicated and rich uh, sort of working experience. Uh, we will talk in a later podcast about people who walk in fields. We've talked in the past about people who, who handle objects and, you know, and analyze their physicality. But designing an exhibition is one of the most complex things that someone in our field can do because there's not only the scholarship side in all the books and in many cases the the excavations and the art historical preservation that goes in, but the logistics of organizing the transportation of objects, securing rights, and organizing the space and having a concept that you want to get across through the organization and design of the space. This for me is just, it's wild. It's on another level. So I was very, very fortunate to meet our guest today, Amanda Leister from the College of the Holy Cross in Massachusetts, 
who has put together a fascinating sounding exhibition there, who not only organized the exhibition, but did a lot of scholarly detective work to reconstruct the original meaning of the artifacts that are on display and has published, a, a, edited a volume um, about the exhibition and those artifacts and their historical context. Now, as it happens, the exhibition opens today, <laughs> the day on which I am releasing this podcast, at least, because I don't know when you're going to be listening to it, but January 26th. And it will run until April 6th at the Cantor Art Gallery at the College of the Holy Cross, which is about an hour's drive uh, west of Boston. So if you're in the area during that time window, you might want to consider checking it out if it's not too far off your route. Now, the exhibition is called Bringing the Holy Land Home, the Crusades, Chertsey Abbey, and the Reconstruction of a Medieval Masterpiece. And it is about, apparently, the most famous tiles in Europe. This is a floor from an abbey in... 13th century England, uh, which had images, uh, have images on it that allude to the Crusades or famous images of Richard Lionheart and Saladin, uh, you know, fighting it out. Um, and the whole experience was meant to evoke the uh, sort of ambiance of the Crusades and the Holy Land with artistic allusions to Byzantium and Islamic art and so forth. I learned a lot from reading the catalog, the, the ex exhibition volume. Uh, these are fascinating objects, um, and I'm very glad I had this opportunity to speak with Amanda uh, about them, but also about what it's like to organize a museum exhibition, something that we've all seen, uh, but perhaps haven't really thought about how it's done. There's an art to that, too. So I will add a link to the exhibition and the catalog in the podcast episode description. Let me also say that I think during our conversation, Marjorie upstairs started to practice on the piano. In fact, she is doing so right now. I don't know if you can hear it, uh, but uh, she's a very good player. But she practices so often that I've gotten tired <laughs> of getting up and going to my daughter's room to escape the sound. The room is beginning to feel more like a lair that I'm invading. But um, I trust that the microphone might filter that sound out, but if not, I don't think it would be entirely inappropriate to have some piano accompaniment to our conversations or my intro. Anyway, I hope it's not distracting if it does make it through. Uh, so I'll stop there. Uh, thanks to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes. In fact, uh, this one is it being more of a Western medieval topic, is uh, more... Uh, suited to the, I suppose, the bulk of the audience of the Medievalist.net um, uh, uh, webpage. Uh, so I'll stop there. Here's my conversation with Amanda Leister. Amanda, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's lovely to be here. So you're the first guest I've had who is organizing an exhibition, and we're going to be talking about that. Uh, so this is a, a, a great, this is a great opportunity for me too. Um, you know, I remember in the late 90s, I met one of the I don't know, intern staffers, whatever, at the Met, who did a lot of the grunt work for organizing the Glory of Byzantium exhibition, uh, Mr. Olenka Pevny. And she told me just how much work was involved in that. I had no idea. I thought exhibitions just kind of, you know, happen. <laughs> um, 
And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that because a lot of our audience goes to exhibitions and I want them to know, you know, how much, you know, what they're seeing. Before we do that, uh, can you start us off by telling us what your exhibition is about, uh, where, when, and what's in it? Our exhibition takes place at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, in the Cantor Gallery in our brand new Prior Performing Arts Center. It's a really beautiful space, by the way, lots of glass, lots of light. So our show opens January 26th, closes April 6th, with a scholarly symposium with international speakers from the British Museum and elsewhere on Saturday, March 25th. So the exhibition is entitled, Bringing the Holy Land Home, The Crusades, Chertsey Abbey, and the Reconstruction of a Medieval Masterpiece. It's about our reconstruction of the 13th century English tiles known as the Chertsey tiles, the most elaborate, famous floor tiles in medieval Europe, um, about their, their images and their lost Latin texts. When we completed their reconstruction, we made two discoveries. One, that the tile series, which had previously been understood as a series of combats, was all about the Crusades. And two, that the tile pavement's composition and iconography closely resembled those of Islamic and Byzantine silks, which were brought home to England by returning Crusaders. So the show isn't just about our reconstruction of the Chertsey tiles, but it's also about the impact of Islamic and Byzantine art on the visual culture of Western Europe and especially England. We have on display the most famous pair of Chertsey tiles direct from the British Museum to us. These show Richard the Lionheart and the Sultan Saladin. Um, we also have textiles, manuscripts, metalwork, ivory, coins, and seals from the Met, Dumbarton Oaks, Boston's Museum of Fine Arts, Harvard Art Museums, the Morgan Library and Museum, and the Worcester Art Museum. Wow. Uh, so let me just say for the record, I did not know about these tiles before I read the materials you sent me. I'm sorry. I, just, I also didn't know there was a pecking order among medieval European tiles. <laughs> and, that, and that these were at the top, but I was fascinated by I was fascinated by what I read, and 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 they look absolutely gorgeous. Um, and so so my idea of tiles is a very Eastern Mediterranean one, like Turkish tiles. Like that's my that's yeah, very limited repertoire. Okay, um, so I wanted to talk um, about some of the things that you mentioned, but first I wanted to talk about exhibitions and organizing exhibitions in general. Um, and the exhibition volume starts by saying that the volume in the exhibition tell a fascinating story. So I wanted to get to that story, but first tell us a little bit about how you uh, imagine an exhibition in a way that tells a story, right? So obviously it, it has to showcase the objects. How do you get that sort of narrative form in there? So you're, you're absolutely right. A good exhibition tells a story. The trouble is that in many, most exhibition spaces, there's actually a lot of different ways to move around a space. So you have to make sure that the story makes sense, regardless of which way the visitor chooses to move around the space. So in our show, right. when you enter, at first, everyone has to turn right. 
But then there's a choice where you can either move to the left or you, you can move to the right. And then you get more choices after that. So my first point is this. Yeah, it needs to be a story, but it's also a story that can't just be understood by means of a single narrative path. So it's really different from writing a story, for instance, where there's a clear single linear throw. This happens, this happens, this happens. Mm -hmm. In an exhibition, it's spatial. And it needs to be able to be experienced in different narrative orders and right. still come together. Like pick, so, pick your own adventure. Yes. I was actually thinking of that. I was thinking of that same thing. Um, so I can walk you through what, what we've done. Um, we have started in a clear place and we end in a clear place. And then the visitor can navigate through the intermediate spaces to fill out their understanding of different parts mm. of the narrative. So we started with the fragments of the tiles when you enter, and we end with the reconstruction of the tile pavement and its lost Latin texts within the Abbey context at the far end wall. So overall, that's your journey from fragment to floor. But along that journey, you're learning about different contexts that the churchy tiles belong to, that actually they, they need to be understood within. So some of the different contexts we've set up are, are just where you enter, you see the best known churchy tiles representing Richard the Lionheart sending a lance through the Ayyubid Sultan Saladin, which never happened, by the way. <laughs> um, although those two figures were opponents in the Third Crusade. So we use that to sort of introduce the historical context of the Crusades. We have some gorgeous coins and seals and a big map to try and lay that out. Who are the major players? Who are the Byzantines? And so on. So that's right where you go in. That's the introductory section. Then, and remember at this point, the visitor has a choice. One of the sections you can move into is all about the art of combat how art showing hunts, especially lion hunts and soldiers on horseback, especially in roundels, how this has a long history and the Chertsey tiles need to be understood within that history. So we have a lovely late antique silver plate there and some late antique and Byzantine textiles showing those subjects. We have another section focusing on the Morgan Crusader Bible. Um, that fits well, not only into the context of the Crusades, because it shows Old Testament heroes in the mode of dressed as Crusaders, but it also lets us expand on the role that religion played. So some visitors might not know that Christians, Muslims, and Jews have some common theological ground, that they all recognize the validity, validity of the text that Christians called the Old Testament. So Old Testament heroes like Samson, who show up on the Chertsey tiles and who also show up in the Morgan Crusader Bible. These are figures that have narratives that interest people from all three faiths. And the Morgan Crusader Bible is actually great because it makes this tri-faith interest really clear and physically manifest because it has texts written on its pages in Latin, Persian, and Judeo-Persian written by members of these three faiths. So we were really lucky, not only that was the British Museum willing to lend the Chertsey tiles, 
but that the Morgan was willing to lend these leaves from what is really one of the most well-known manuscripts associated with the Crusades. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, it's gorgeous. It's also very bloody, guts spilling out all over the place. Yeah. So then there's, after that, there's two sections set up as pendants, both intended to suggest an interior space in which imported Byzantine and objects, Byzantine and Islamic objects cohabit next to Western European objects. So one of these is meant to suggest a feast table. It's crowded with Islamic ceramic work, um, with metalwork from various locations. The other one is meant to suggest an altar, proudly displaying a Byzantine reliquary cross and a Byzantine icon alongside vestments made in Europe from imported Islamic or Byzantine silk. So both those sections are inspired by um, Western European secular and ecclesiastical inventories, which show all these objects of varied mm. origin, sharing space in use alongside each other, cheek by jowl. So that's also um, often the mechanism by which Western European artists like the Chertsey artists get inspired by imported objects. They see these imported objects locally. They get excited to make their own local objects that adopt aspects of the imported um, objects. So then you reach the final wall, carrying your knowledge of these contexts, historical contexts of the Crusades, the tradition of combat art in roundels, the use of objects from all over the place on altars and feast tables um, in Western Europe and in England. The final wall grounds you very deeply in our reconstruction and how it fits exactly at Chertsey outside London, in the chapter house, in that monastery. So you'll see the full tile reconstruction, including all the Latin texts and all the pictorial roundels that remain. You'll also see a video on loop showing a fly through of a reconstruction of the countryside surrounding the monastery, then into mm. the monastery church, then out into the cloister, then into the chapter house where you see the tiles all laid. Um, so I hope that this brings you full circle. You've started out with these fragments of English clay, of English soil, and then you go and you learn a whole lot about what else is going on in visual culture. And then you come to the end to a much richer understanding of how much these tiles can tell us and how they really need to be understood in contexts that are much larger than Chertsey Abbey. Um, and how in the end, all this means that they also make perfect sense exactly where they were found in this chapter house in a monastery next to the Thames. Wow, that is such a sort of sophisticated architectural or spatial understanding of how a narrative and pedagogical narrative can work. Um, it What you just said, sort of goes so well with, uh, I posted an episode on narrative, writing narrative history, which exactly as you said, is usually a much more linear kind of process. But, you know, you, you're you working with different materials and and wow, that, that's really uh, impressive. Um, so we'll get back to the materials in a moment. Now you mentioned the um, artifacts that you have on loan uh, from the British Museum and other places. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about this process because the, the kind of logistical behind the scenes work that you had to do. And I know that there are things like securing the objects, the permission, the loans, the space. 
uh, insurance plans, transportation, and I imagine all of those things for precious historical objects, museum pieces is a very specialized industry. You've probably been working on this for years, right? I mean, like writing a book, right? Or something like that. Like it's that kind of process. Can you tell us a little bit more about that process? What does it look like behind the scenes? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. This has taken many years on the order of a book project. But at the same time, unlike a book project, it's really a team endeavor. So I want to make it very clear that if it were just me, this exhibition would never have happened. I have been working really closely with our gallery director, Meredith Fluke, who was the one who actually wrote all the letters to the museums and her assistant director actually made all the transportation arrangements. So I, I, I can actually um, take us through all that, but let me first say, it's not all me, <laughs> thank goodness. Yes. Um, all right, so I started thinking about the Chertsey tiles way back in the year 2000 when I was in my um, PhD at Harvard and I had a year in London at the Courtauld and I started thinking about the Chersey tiles as being interesting. As often happens with projects in one's PhD, it never actually turned into think into anything. I just kind of kept it on the back burner for a while. And then I did a bunch of teaching and I ended up teaching much more broadly, you know, across Byzantine and Islamic um, and global medieval. And when I came back around 2015, and I looked at the tiles, I saw some things in them that I hadn't seen the first time when I was a graduate student. So I started thinking, well, this, this would be an interesting project to pursue. And I, at first, I just wanted to do a reconstruction of the tiles. I didn't think that it was going to turn into an exhibition. So after a couple of years, in 2017, um, the British Museum had agreed to let me come in and take all the hundreds of photographs that I needed to build the reconstruction. And while I was there, we had a handling session, a discussion section at the British Museum with a number of, of people. And I had a meeting afterwards with the Islamicist Scott Redford. And he said, you know, you really need to do a show about this. I remember very clearly sitting next to him on a park bench outside the British Museum. And I said, well, I don't know how to do a show. And he said, that's okay, you'll figure it out. <laughs> so that, that was what planted the wow. seed in my mind is that actually there would be interest in this kind of material, which is scholarly discovery, but has a, a broader appeal. So then I went back, I'm like, hmm, well, okay, maybe we could think about this, how would this work? And then around 2019, we got a new gallery director at my home institution, the College of the Holy Cross. And I approached her with this idea of doing a show about the Chertsey tiles. And I'm very lucky that she said, yes, we should move forward. We should think about it. So starting around then in 2019, I had to think about what things would actually go in the show. So clearly it needs the Chertsey tiles. What else does it need to tell this story of Eastern Mediterranean objects coming into Western Europe and changing the consistency of that visual culture? So I spent many, many hours looking at the online catalogs for all kinds of museums, um, mostly in the US, some overseas, and trying to pull together uh, a list of ideas. 
So then I moved to the other aspect of organizing an exhibition that was kind of foreign to me. And that is the fact that an exhibition costs money and a good exhibition costs quite a lot of money. Mm. And you've got to figure out where that money is going to come from. So our budget is on the order of $400,000. That money needs to be carefully uh, with lots of labor drawn from many different sources. Right. So it was around that same time, 2019, that we started writing our first grant applications. And then you have iterations. You send out exploratory letters to museums. Hey, would you consider loaning these objects? If you've gotten a grant, you can include in the letter, and we've gotten this grant. Or if a museum says you can have a loan, you include in the grant application, oh, and the museum has said we could have this loan. So there's this constant moving out in ever widening circles with more and more pieces gradually becoming known. But the fact that an exhibition costs money is always playing in to how you make your choices. So for instance, mm. all right, there's some objects you really need. The Tristy tiles need to come from the British Museum. But if you can borrow from museums that are within driving distance, it's a lot less expensive. So you start looking really hard at museums that are in driving distance. Plus, if you're already borrowing one object from a museum, it's a lot simpler and more cost-effective to borrow a group of objects from that same museum rather than borrowing 10 different objects from 10 different museums. So there's a lot of kind of triangulation that's going on. Um, Wait, can I ask, oh, so yeah. how does something like the tiles cross the Atlantic? I mean, like in coach, like, I mean, <laughs> no, or, or, or is, is there like a specialized industry that transports historical objects? What? All right. All right. Great question. Let me, let me say, um, to preface this two things. Number one, museums don't like people to talk very much about exactly how their objects travel because of security reasons. Sure. Um, and number two, the gallery director and assistant director were really the ones who pulled heavy weight on this task. But um, the Chertsey tiles have to be moved with, yes, a specialized transportation company. They also, because they're crossing international boundaries, have to come alongside with a bunch of legal paperwork. Right. Because for instance, if you're moving a valuable ancient art object from one country into another, there's a potential at that moment where it's crossing borders that it could be seized if there's any legal reason to do so. Right. So we had to file international immunity from seizure paperwork <clears throat> months before those tiles actually started to move just to make sure that they were going to get where we needed them to go. Yeah. So they are, of course, packaged in incredible crates that are these marbles of engineering. And they are accompanied every step of the way by somebody from the British Museum whose job it is to watch them every step of the way. And so when the tiles arrived in our gallery, they arrived in the, the tight possession of this individual from the British Museum. And it was then his responsibility to uh, uncrate them and then to install them in our cases. 
So it's the museum's responsibility to make sure that all those objects um, are placed very carefully in our show, but it's our responsibility to organize all the tickets and the insurance and all the practicalities of that. Right. And then of course, at the end of the show, you got to go hold it through the whole thing in reverse and everything has to get home safely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I've actually spoken with colleagues on the art history side who are sometimes called by you know, customs and they say, well, we seize this crate full of what look to be antiquities. Can you come and authenticate them? And I think there was a case where it's just like, if you find that they're fake, we will destroy them. Like, so that they don't go into the illicit, like the, the fake, you know, I don't know, antiquities market or what for, you know, whatever. Anyway, it was, it's pretty I, scary stuff. Um, what was the most stressful part of the organization for you? Um, all right, I'm going to say two points. Um, the first was when we weren't sure if we were going to get the Chertsey tiles, because as I think I mentioned, our gallery is in a brand new, beautiful building. But like all brand new buildings, this building was undergoing some teething troubles about humidity and, you know, um, consistency and temperature. And there are all these physical properties that museums care very much about for their objects. And mm. they require consistent long-term measurements of those things. And we weren't sure we were going to be able to provide that because oh, our wow. building was new. So I thought everything might well fall apart at that point, because if we couldn't get the Chertsey tiles, there's no point in having the show. Unfortunately, tiles are, tiles are pretty resilient objects. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> historically, they're the most resilient objects that <laughs> medieval civilizations produced. I, I hear you. The British <laughs> Museum wants to be very, very careful with their objects, yes, which I understand. Right. Okay, yeah, I'll keep my mouth shut about the Parthenon, the marbles, but I, <laughs> and what parties they organize around. Okay, um, so tell us a little bit about the other events that you organize, you know, before, during, and around the exhibition to kind of showcase it sort of academically or for the press or whatever. What, what other things do you have to organize? All right, events. Um, when you're thinking about events, you want to think about who your audience is. So we wanted um, a multi-leveled audience. We wanted, importantly, faculty and students from our college. Um, we also wanted academics, national and international. And then we wanted um, local population, especially school children in the Worcester area. So once you have your audience outlined, then you design events to bring in each of those audiences to your show. So we have a series of lectures um, by which, you know, college faculty and students can learn more about themes about the show. We organized and are still organizing many emails every day about this, um, a big conference happening on campus on March 25th with curators from the British Museum and um, all kinds of really um, great scholars across many fields, Western medievalists, Islamists, Byzantinists, not just art historians, but also historians. So that's going to be the kind of academic focus on March 25th. And then we're still putting together um, a bunch of basically uh, field trips for local school children, various high schools, middle schools, um, that kind of thing. 
Let's not forget podcasts. <laughs> podcasts are very no. important too. Podcasts are super important. And I have to say, I love podcasts because go. they just equate me with all kinds of things that I didn't know about in a way that fits very nicely into my day. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah ditto. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the aesthetics of the exhibition. So you have to make choices about, I mean, maybe you didn't make these choices, uh, but color, light, shapes, I don't know, background, uh, wallpaper, the interfaces, the videos, all of this stuff. Because that it, it shapes a viewer's experience pretty fundamentally. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about the choices that you made here, um, about the overall aesthetics of the exhibition? Yeah. And, and again, these decisions were made not just by me, but also by the gallery director. And we also had a designer who's amazing. So the first thing to take into account is that the gallery already has its own aesthetics. It has a very high ceiling. It's a lofty space. It had lots of sunlight before we blocked it out for the textiles. Uh, it has a lot of uh, white walls originally and a pale floor. So you can paint the walls and you can tone down the lighting, but you can't change the floor color. So, mm. you know, when I think medieval exhibitions, I often think a kind of dark, smoky atmosphere with the medieval objects glittering like jewels spotlight mm. among them. Yeah. We couldn't have that aesthetic because the floor, it just throws all those tones off. Right. So instead we have um, sort of mid-tone neutrals on the walls. Fine. Um, we do have wallpaper designed, um, on the basis of a Cleveland, um, textile. And I really wanted that because I didn't want that kind of clean modernist aesthetic for this show. And I didn't want that because I don't think that's the way medieval people would have appreciated their medieval objects. When I look at inventories of what's going on in rooms, it's, um, what do they call it today? It's maximalism. It's all kinds of patterns and textures and colors and a real richness. Mm. So I wanted to the extent that I could to try and hint at that experience. Plus the whole role of textiles um, hanging all over the place is something that is important to understanding the environment within which the Chertsey textiles themselves arose. So we have these wallpapers on various of the walls that suggest this idea of hanging textiles. And it also gives kind of a um, uh, more richness of color. Yeah, no, quite right. Um, and then the final decision is about how are you going to interface with video and with technology. And there is a traditional view that a number of art historians have had, which is that an art exhibition should be about the art period. You shouldn't have like fancy screens showing videos. You shouldn't have things that click and make noise. You shouldn't have, you know, uh, screens with people talking. Um, and I understand that school of thought, but the more I spoke to people about choices that we needed to make in this exhibition, it became clear to me that if you want your visitors to be interested in your show and to spend time there and to learn there, you need to have some kind of digital interface. 
So we do have a video playing on the back wall. You can't see it all the time. It's hidden by walls some of the time, but when you get back there, you can see it. And that's playing on loop this fly through of the monastery and bringing you into the chapter house with the tiles. And we also have QR codes on a number of the labels. So if you bring your smartphone or also we have some iPads in the gallery that you can borrow, you can just use that QR code to go directly to um, a website that I've made for each of the objects on display. And the ones with the QR code also have a short three to five minute interview with somebody, me or my students. So if you wanna know more about the Byzantine and Colpion, then you click the QR code and somebody tells you more about it and you can click through some more about it. So I'm excited about that way of interacting with a show. I have to say it has meant that we had to engage in yet another third level of work because yeah. not only is there the exhibition catalog and not only is there the exhibition, but now there is also the website, which also needs somebody to go through and proof and and debug all of its 300 pages. Ooh, yes. Uh, I, I, I was recently in uh, Geneva um, and a colleague there very graciously took me to the Bodmer Museum. This is a collection, this is a collector of books. Um, and there were some fascinating um, books there from all periods on display. But there was also this table that was an interactive video screen. And you could not only make selections but by touch, but you could expand them, swivel them. It's very bright color on the table. And we were just kind of standing around it and playing around with the graphics. Very interactive. Like the only thing that was missing was a hologram to pop up of the Death Star, you know, <laughs> rotating above the table. No, it was really something else. Um, and I've never actually, and, and the graphics were so crisp, like you could zoom in on a manuscript page and look at the detail, incredible granular um, resolution. Anyway, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Um, Let me ask you though, do you feel like you got more, you got more from that experience because of that digital interface? Well, I'm, I remember it. I'm telling you about it now. Um, <laughs> I mean, I do remember the books uh, that were on display. I mean, they were very interesting to see. Uh, too. But, you know, for a long time, like I remember in the you know, 80s and 90s and so on, museum exhibitions didn't, like their technology didn't change very much. It was a pretty standard. And I'm from Greece where the museums, especially during that time, were very, let's just call it classic, right? Kind of a bare room with the, the object on display on a marble stand. And, you know, that's kind of um, so no, I'm always interested in seeing, uh, you know, what you can do with new technologies. Uh, yeah. Um, after all, when you put a book on exhibit, you can only see the two pages that it's open to. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, on this screen, you could like wrote, you could flip through the pages of a number of manuscripts. It's fascinating. Um, anyway, good. Uh, right. So let's turn from the exhibition a little bit more to the objects at the heart of it. And can you tell us about the Chertsey Monastery and the history of the tiles? It's kind of a very brief overview so that, you know, our audience knows, you know, what, what these things are. The Chertsey tiles were discovered in the 1850s as a pile of fragments in the chapter house at Chertsey Abbey outside London. Most of those fragments went into the collection of the British Museum. In the 1970s, the British Museum tile curator, Elizabeth Eames, 
put together some of those fragments physically fitted them together. She put together the roundels that are most famous today, which is the one showing Richard the Lionheart and then the pendant one showing Saladin. And those two roundels with their surrounding foliate um, ornamental frames, those are uh, on display in the medieval gallery at the British Museum. Well, actually they're not right now, they're in our gallery right now, but normally if you go to the British Museum, they're part of the medieval gallery. And it's because of that reconstruction, physical reconstruction accomplished in the 70s, that the Chertsey tiles have become arguably the most admired medieval floor tiles in all of Europe. Now, why? Well, they are famous because of their um, really impressive um, technique, skill, artistry, the fineness of line. They have a lot of evocative emotional detail. Um, they've been named the high, high watermark of medieval, medieval tile manufacture. They're also famous because of their subject matter. Um, although it might seem strange, there is not a lot of art depicting specific crusading events made during the period 1100 to 1300 when most of the crusades to the Holy Land were taking place. So this representation of Richard the Lionheart and Saladin gets used all over the place um, in books, articles, all across the internet, you know, History Today mm. websites. Very often, if you're looking at a story about the Crusades, yeah. this image of these two roundels pops up. So, so, so I've seen these before. I just yeah. didn't know that I'd seen them. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're pretty common, actually. Right. So they were found at Chertsey Abbey, uh, Benedictine Abbey, about 20 miles outside London along the Thames. Chertsey Abbey was founded in the seventh century, was one of the more important medieval abbeys. It's also, because of its location along the Thames, very conveniently located for anyone who's traveling from London to the West Country along the river, which of course a lot of medieval people did. So um, King Henry III, who we'll get into, was probably the patron or one of the patrons of the tiles, was one of the people who stopped at Chertsey Abbey um, as he traveled along the Thames. And so Chertsey Abbey had had a big fire in 1235. So for the rest of the 13th century, they're kind of gradually rebuilding. And they rebuild the chapter house in this period. And so a chapter house is basically the kind of meeting place for the monks where they attend to daily business. But it's also a central site for hospitality. So if you're any kind of substantial monastery at this time, part of your job is to welcome visitors like King Henry III. And when you welcome them, you also have to give them a place for them to conduct their business. And so at Chertsey, that would have been in the chapter house. Mm. So the chapter house is a site where a lot of important things and people get done. Documents get signed, letters get written, and so on and so on. The chapter house at Chertsey is really weirdly large. Um, something like 49 feet by 80 feet, like it's wow. really big, one of the biggest in England. And it was paved with these really unusual tiles. Plus, they had a second room as big as the chapter house right next to it, which we're not sure what it was, maybe a warming room, a parlor, something like that. So it seems like there's this complex in Chertsey Abbey 
that is there not just for their own use, but as a place to welcome and show off in front of important guests. So that's the context we need to imagine for these pretty gorgeous and amazing tiles is that space. All right. In Byzantium, that would have been a mosaic right there. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Like the palace mosaics that we have in Istanbul. Yeah. Um, so do we know anything about specifically about who commissioned them and the, you know, the process of their manufacture? We guess a lot about who commissioned them, right? Just, you know, none of this is written down. So the Chertsey tiles have been known for a long time, famous since their discovery in the 1850s. Um, since the early 1900s, scholars have said, and more recently, pretty much everyone, not everyone I can think of, has agreed that these are very likely a royal commission made for Westminster Palace in London. And it would have been a commission that took place around the year 1250. Um, some people say 1250 to 1260. Um, and so in that case, it's King Henry III and his wife, Queen Eleanor of Provence, who are in charge. Mm. So it makes sense that it is that royal pair who commissioned these tiles. Um, and there are particular formal reasons for why people have posited that this is the case. One of those reasons is that, all right, so most of medieval Westminster Palace no longer survives, but just adjacent to it is Westminster Abbey, which was also the object of a lot of patronage by Henry III and a lot of the same artists and craftsmen and so on. They're working across the two. And in Westminster Abbey, in their chapter house, is a group of tiles that are pretty much the closest comparison that we have to these tiles found at Chersey. They're also secular themes. They also use the same technique, which mm. is called an inlaid tile. So for an inlaid tile, you have a red clay body and you press into it a mold that makes impressions that make a picture. And then you pour in a sort of semi-liquid or mayonnaise type consistency clay that's white clay. So the white clay goes into all the little lines that the mold has made. And then you clean off the surface and you have a, a beautiful design of white lines against a red clay body. And so that technique of inlaid clay tiles is absolutely in use under Henry III um, at Westminster Abbey with secular themes. Henry's also really interested in including a lot of Latin text with his tiles. These have a, a massive amount of Latin text. Um, the Chertsey tiles are also incredibly complicated. So each pictorial roundel has four um, quarters that make it up. And then that's surrounded by 12 text tiles around that. And then there's a foliate body around that. So if you were just looking for a practical tile floor to lay, you would never come up with that kind of strategy. Right. I mean, it, for instance, it seems to take literate tile layers to know how to lay the Latin texts around the edge. So for all kinds of reasons, this makes sense as a royal commission tied specifically to Westminster um, Palace under Henry III and um, Queen Eleanor Pauls. Right. Literate tile makers. That's that's an interesting combination. You know, in, in antiquity and in Byzantium, there's often this disconnect between the people who write the texts 
And the people who carve them on inscriptions, for example, when you're making some sort of monumental inscription, not all the time, but the, the carvers often don't, are not at the level of the text, you know, literary yeah. reg linguistic register, and they make a lot of mistakes sometimes. Um, the most embarrassing one was a um, on an art object. I can't. Remember, I was talking about this with Mark Lugsterman, where the the craftsman who put the text on the object included the instructions. Put this on the cross. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I take it your tiles don't have that level of clumsiness. Um, so apart from Richard and Saladin, what else do they depict? And can you tell us a little bit about the the your effort to reconstruct the overall artistic program that they represent? Now, I, I know it gets sort of complicated, uh, but entice us with the problem. What what is it? Okay, the problem: six hundred plus fragments, text and image. Um, the pictures. A lot of people have done a lot of work with, um, but the stage that they had reached before we started working was they had black and white drawings that were compilations of the fragments. Mm -hmm. And as I'm sure you know, drawings can have a lot of um, disadvantages. And we're in a world now where we're pretty used to photography. So the first thing I wanted to do was create a photographic reconstruction of the pictorial tiles, which is not terrifically complicated. Well, a little bit not, not uh, intellectually complicated. You go and you photograph all of the fragments at a set distance. So they're all the same size. And then I was lucky I, I had um, people, especially Janice DMRA at Holy Cross, our visual imaging expert, who manipulated all those photographs overlapped them in the correct way and we come up with some beautiful photographic composites which no one had ever seen before so that was stage one the pictures um stage two the texts now reconstructing texts i think is a fascinating problem um you know there's all kinds of ways in which people have been working to reconstruct texts that seemed lost if ink has faded, you can put special light on it. If it's a three-dimensional single inscription, you can use 3D modeling to like fit the pieces back together again. But the Chertsey tiles are a different kind of problem. What they are are um, strings of letters between one and four letters. So F-R-E, R-I-C-A, I-A. And they're on mold-made bits of tile. So you can never use the shape of the object to tell you if it went before or after or next to any of the other fragments. So Not we had a list of 85 um, groups of letters between two and, and four letters. And you figure out, well, okay, well, what do I do with these? Wow. So first I just gave them to some classics undergraduates. I'm like, hey, can you practice? <laughs> yeah, it's just like, like, well, I don't know. They, they've got Latin in their head all the time. Maybe some things come up. They came up with one word. Like, okay. <laughs> Baculo. All right. Fine. <laughs> um, so then I, again, work closely with our classics department. Um, Neil Smith in our classics department is also a programmer. And he said, look, what you can do is you can write a program that will consult a body of texts that you give it. So we gave it some 
Latin Crusader chronicles written around the end of the 12th century. And it will match up your text string to any place it finds that text string in a crusading document. And then it'll spit out a list. So interestingly, when we put the fragment R-I-C-A into that program, the only thing it ever came up with was versions of the name Richard. So we're like, okay, all right, this is interesting. So we got some results from comparing those letter strings to uh, crusading texts. I decided that I also wanted to take into account frequency dictionaries. So we looked at how common it was to find this thread of letters uh, in you know, this word, which is more common or less common. Right, I'm getting a little bit into the weeds, but in the end, we came up with likely readings of words and in two cases, full phrases for the Chertsey tiles. Um, and we were able to make sense of about half, half of the extant fragments. And if anyone wants to learn more about exactly which words go with which tile, um, that's all in our exhibition catalog. And it's also all on our website. Wow. So you're not only organizing an exhibition here, you're solving historical art historical problems that, wow, this includes, you know, digital imagery reconstruction and sort of philological, you know, you need like AI basically to solve a lot of these. <laughs> that was really fun. Putting the puzzle together was my wow. favorite part. Yes. But, and you did it on a computer, right? You didn't print out the, the, the color images and put them on the floor and try to arrange them. And Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. That would have been nice, too. <laughs> um, so why Richard the Lionheart on this floor? Oh, right. All right. So the pictures represented include Richard the Lionheart and Saladin. We also have a roundel that shows Samson um, tearing the lion apart. We also have images of soldiers on horseback. There's a trial by combat two men um, parallel, ready to duke it out. We have um, one figure I think is interesting. He's, he's very clearly classicizing. He's wearing a toga. He has curly hair. He has bare feet. He's fighting a lion. We have somebody engaged in a Parthian shot. So the subject matter is all these different combats. And in my mind, I collect them in two groups. There's kind of Richard and his soldiers. And then there's the lion fighters. Gradually, as I learned more about crusading literature, I realized that that was also actually a, a false dichotomy because when you read about crusading exploits, very often in the same narrative, you hear of you know, a battle between the Christians and the Saracens. And then on the next page you read about, and so-and-so encountered a lion in the land and you know, filled it full of arrows that the lion fights are part of the crusading experience in the Holy Land, and that that connects back to biblical precedents of encounters with lions as with mm. Samson and, and others. Mm. Right. Um, I was actually reading the, the itinerary of the pilgrims and of King Richard, uh, the, you know, this text yesterday, actually. And I was reading it because, yeah, because there's a point, you know, it's, it's disparaging, quote, to the Greeks. Um, and it talks about how, they've declined in martial virtue um since the days of achilles and 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 so forth and it talks about the trojan war and that text says that or is it that text i'm not sure that like martial virtues and 
you know, the ancient Greeks were good at arts and crafts and war, but all of those skills have now gone to the Latin West. Ah, um, see, and that um, bringing in of Achilles, I've read similar texts too, where they talk about Alexander the Great, where you start getting ideas, it's not the same, but a little bit of ideas of the nine worthies, where there are these ideals of martial virtue who keep getting brought in. And so I think that's probably how we need to understand this classicizing writer, is that he's making people think about these um, classical heroes and the fabulous things that they did. Yeah, yeah. I was struck to find that in the text so much. Um, so we're almost out of time, but I want to bring this back to Byzantium. Um, could you tell us what does all this have to do with Byzantium then? <laughs> Absolutely. So when we reconstructed the tile pavement, first we found out, okay, they're all about the Crusades. Text and image tell us this. But then we find out that the composition of the tile pavement, um, the fact that it's in a medallion layout with foliate interpol interpolations, and the subject matter, which is all these mounted horsemen and lion fights. So both the composition and the subject matter connect really tightly to a big group of Islamic and Byzantine figural silks. There are lots of these silks that survive, mm. um, mounted horsemen and roundels, lion fights in roundels. Um, oftentimes it's the same image repeated. Sometimes it's varying in terms of images. And I was struck by that. And I went out and looked to see if I could find records that English people owned these textiles. And they absolutely did. Multiple yeah. ones very closely associated, like Henry III owned like four with this kind of iconography. So they are absolutely around. Um, they're often coming back um, with returning crusaders, but also they're circulating independently of the crusades and have circulated for centuries. So the connection between these tiles and the, the Byzantine world particularly is that they help us to think about the really significant role that Byzantine silks are playing in places where you might not expect it, like medieval England. And so when you look at these inventories, there are, I made a big table, I like spreadsheets, 200 <laughs> examples of um, textiles that are very likely to be either Byzantine or Islamic in English 13th, 12th, 13th century collections. Oh, wow. And there are also wall paintings in the 13th century that are reflecting this Byzantine iconography. So I think that, all right, so we all know, or, or most of us know, that there's a long tradition of seeing the impact of Byzantine, especially manuscript iconography, icon iconography, painted iconography in English art and manuscripts like the Winchester Bible and stuff like that. But then when you get to the year 1200 or so, and we start to move into the Gothic, there's really hardly any recognition that Byzantine stuff still stays important in England. Whereas in fact, I think there is a lot of evidence that Byzantine stuff stays important. It's just the kind of Byzantine stuff seems to be a little bit different. These silks are really important and they're important because they have these imperial connotations that the English would really like to connect themselves to. Yeah, I have found a English fascination with Byzantine fashion and garments and silk and so forth, textiles from like the 10th century um, yeah, I was reading on the Anglo-Saxons many, many years ago, and they even like sported the Greek title Vasilefs uh, on their official coins and seals. Uh, isn't yes. It, yeah, yeah, 10th century Anglo-Saxon kings. And I'm like, wow, they're, 
they're really going for the like the prestige it's it, and it's really meaningful meaningful to them later on too it's fascinating yeah yeah and you know in the 13th century a lot of byzantine stuff was dispersed throughout europe after the fourth crusade um yeah english didn't have anything to do with that but that one but uh yeah uh this has all been fascinating amanda um i really really appreciate the opportunity to learn more about this i, I wouldn't have done it if um you know we hadn't met at the what byzantine studies conference uh what is it two years ago now um it was yeah cleveland so. yeah anyway yeah. and um you know I'm, I'm beginning to read more and more about western medieval topics um as the audience can probably tell because i keep making asides about all these weird western texts that i'm reading <laughs> <laughs> but anyway no so this uh what you pulled together here was a wonderful way um to you know both create bridges and ease people into you know 13th century english um uh you know art and 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 uh um that, that that i wouldn't have otherwise um so thank you any final words for the audience other than go see the exhibition if you're anywhere near uh, Massachusetts. <laughs> it's just that come see the exhibition we'd love to have you all right uh and i i wish you best of luck for it. i you know now we all know how much work is involved so i hope it's a, a smashing success thank you so much Thank you for Thank having you for me coming on. on. Thanks, Amanda. Take care.